The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. If you've paid close attention to your worship bulletin this morning, I'm sure you're already disappointed in the sense that you thought Roger Beardmore would be preaching this morning and you find that he is sitting there and I'm standing here. Um, I was in fact excited when I got here and saw that because I thought maybe I was just off the hook this morning and Roger was up and I was going to be blessed by what he brought. Uh, Though Roger actually will be bringing God's word next week, so uh, uh, you, you won't want to miss that. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, we go back to this text that we began last week and try to bring it to a conclusion this morning. Let's read together. You follow along as I read out loud. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's, as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray together. God, we come this morning bowing ourselves before your word, the Bible. We come recognizing our need to submit to what you have said. Because your word is powerful. It changes us. It transforms us. And so as we approach it this morning, we pray that your spirit would work in us and in our midst. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would engage our hearts and our minds. That we might be drawn in to you, to your word, that we might understand it clearly, that we might be transformed by it. We recognize that apart from your work, our minds will be distracted by a thousand other things. Our understanding will be cloudy and our lives will be unchanged. So we confess our desperate dependence upon you this morning. And we look to you, O God as we teach your word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We come back to this text, which is certainly the most challenging text in the book of James, perhaps one of the most challenging texts in all of uh, the New Testament to uh, work our way through. We noted last week why it's challenging. It's challenging because it speaks to things for which there is no other parallel text in the New Testament to help us understand uh, it's, it's a challenge for us because the language throughout which James employs is difficult language. It requires uh, a significant amount of, of work to try and understand exactly what he means by the particular words that he chooses. And it's difficult because it speaks to things uh, with which we are largely uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And so we confess our need for Christ's Spirit to help us as we work our way through trying to understand what is the connection between prayer and healing and what is the responsibility of the church and what should be the expectation of believers as we pray for one another and what should be the responsibility and expectations of elders as they pray over those who are suffering. To get ourselves back into this issue, into these thoughts, I wanted to uh, particularly zoom out by way of introduction on the issue, the broader issue of healing in the, in the Bible. Because it sets for us the backdrop to understanding the second part of this text. Uh, if we isolate our text apart from everything else the scriptures teach us about the issue of healing and God's relationship to healing, 
um, then we're going to find ourselves having a hard time and being skewed in our understanding. So the backdrop is really important. I don't want to belabor the point. We could spend all day sort of doing this. I just want to sort of lay a few foundational thoughts on the issue of healing that we see in the rest of the text to help us kind of come back to James's words here in James chapter 5. One thing we have to remember in thinking through the issue of suffering, sickness, healing, and all of this is that our bodies that we have are not meant to last forever here on this earth. That is not what they are meant for. Our bodies are subject to decay. All of us will at some point die of something, right? You have no expectation, nor should you, that you will live forever. That the body that you have at the moment is meant to stay unchanged forever and healthy. You know by your own personal experience with your body and by the personal experience you have with other people and their bodies that they are not, I mean, they are not meant to last. They decay, they change, things go wrong, things go bad, things wear out and eventually they stop working altogether and we die. We were, in fact, as believers, made for another city, another land. We are aliens residing here for a moment. God has prepared for us another body with which we will spend eternity that is not subject to sin or decay in any form or fashion. We're not meant to be here forever, and these bodies are not meant to last. It's important to remember that as we think through this issue of healing. Secondly, it's important to, to, to note that throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of the church, there have been many times where God has chosen to, for reasons hidden within the mystery of his will, to miraculously heal people of sickness and disease. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it in many places in the New Testament. All healing is at his sovereign discretion, and it is hidden in his mysterious will. That is to say, we don't know why God chooses in certain instances to heal miraculously, and why in certain instances he chooses not to do so. We will get nowhere trying to discern reason for that, that makes sense to us. God's ways are perfect. He is perfectly loving, and he always does what is best. The scriptures tell us that. Beyond that, we can go no further. But God does heal, sometimes in various ways, for reasons known only to him and subject only to his sovereign discretion. During the apostolic era and the early part of the establishment of the New Testament church, in the absence of a a fulfilled written New Testament canon, it seems that God gave particular spiritual gifts particularly to the apostles and some of their close associates, to be able to, at least to some degree, at will, heal people. Uh, it was a particular miraculous gift of healing that not everyone had, that the apostles were commissioned with and had the ability to exercise as they went out and did their ministry. Uh, without belaboring that point, uh, it seems that in every instance where those gifts are exercised, it is always to confirm the word that is being preached by the apostles at that time, the word of the gospel that's going out. The miracles seem to be, and the healings seem to be, sort of a, a side note, not the main attraction. The main attraction is the message that's being delivered of the gospel, but the, the healings and the miracles seem to serve the purpose of doing two things, authenticating the message that's being preached by the apostle and confirming that he does truly represent God. In a world in which there were fakes and frauds all around, in the absence of a written word by which to judge what is true and untrue, God gave particular gifts for a particular season, miraculous gifts, healing gifts, to authenticate the true message and to authenticate his true preacher. But again, even then, these things were the sideline, not the main attraction. Another note in reference to healing is this. Everyone whom God has ever healed, whether miraculously or gradually, has always and in every case died later of something else. It's important to remember this. Lazarus, of all people, who was raised from the dead miraculously by the Lord, later died of something for which he was not healed. That's true of everyone who's ever been healed miraculously or sort of mundanely by God. Eventually, most people will die of some sickness or disease. 
We will catch cancer. We will get heart failure. We will have a heart attack. We will have a stroke. We will have some sort of means by which our body ceases to function and we exit this world and are absent from this body and we immediately are then, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, present with the Lord. Everyone who's healed dies eventually of something. It's important to just say these things out loud because, as I mentioned last week, as as American uh, believers in a culture where we are wealthy and we have access to all sorts of health care and medications and surgeries and procedures, we can be fooled into thinking that we're going to live forever and we can expect, uh, be fooled to think that we should expect comfort and health all the time forever. And that is not the expectation we should live with. We should live with the expectation that we live in decaying bodies. God may naturally, according to His will, choose to heal us of something at some point, miraculously for a moment, for some reason we won't understand, but eventually our bodies will fail and we will die of something. Again, it's harder for us. It's, it's, it's easier for people who live in parts of the world where that is the, the daily norm. It is not for us, so we have to say it. And then finally, God's primary purpose for our lives in this world is not our comfort and physical healing. That is not His primary purpose. His primary purpose for His people is that they might know Him and be made into the image of His Son and become holy. That is God's will for His people. Regardless of what prosperity gospel preachers might tell us, our healing and our physical health is not God's primary concern now. We need to let that sink in. And we need to remember those things as we come to James chapter 5. Because this text, in and of itself, raises all sorts of questions. And it raises all sorts of issues for which we need to make some sense. And uh, we tried last week, beginning in verse 13, looking at this issue where James just sort of lays out a general principle for the believer's lifestyle. He says, is, any, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And he's just laying out a general life principle for all believers, and that is this, that the, the give and take of our lives, that the spiritual air we should breathe is that of prayer and praise to God. Whether we're suffering in some sort of a way, whether it be sickness, physically, whether it be emotional, whether it be spiritual, discouragement, depression, exhaustion, weariness, any sort of suffering, whatever it may be, the right response in every case for a believer is to pray. It's to reach out to the one who can, who can meet us in the midst of our suffering and help us. And on the other end of life, when life is cheerful, when everything is good, when we're not suffering, when we're happy, when the bills are paid, when our relationships are good, when we're feeling good, when our spiritual lives are, are sort of working on all cylinders... When we're cheerful and happy and life is good, what is the right and proper response in every case for a believer? It is to, in another way, pray. It is to direct our praise to God. In, in, in all circumstances of our life, whether at the, at the extreme of suffering or the extreme of life is good and we're on the mountaintop, the right direction of the life of the believer is prayer and praise to God, living with God in view and recognizing that God is a part of our suffering, He is with us in it, and God is responsible for our blessing and He is with us in that. That everything and every peace and every experience of our life is under the sovereign care of a gracious and loving God and we live with that in view in every circumstance. But then James moves from verse 13 to the issue of general suff- from the issue of general suffering and gen- general blessing. And he begins to ask the question, but what about the particular case when believers get to a place where the suffering is so severe and it's so real that they are at the end of their rope? What do you do when the physical sickness is to a point where you're exasperated and you're at the verge of giving up? What do you do when you're weary and exhausted and life has spiraled in a direction that you couldn't have imagined and that you didn't ask for and there's pain and there's suffering in various forms in your life and, and, there's, and you've, you've prayed and you don't seem to be getting the answers. You look to the Word of God and you're just not hearing His voice and it just seems like hope is lost and you can't see your way out of the tunnel. What do you do in those circumstances? Well, James says, here's what you do. Is any among you sick? And all that's captured in the word sick that he uses there. What do you do? Let him call for the elders of the church. 
and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What do you do when, when your suffering is to a point where you don't know what else to do and you're about to lose hope and you don't feel like you have the words to pray for yourself and you don't know what God is up to and you can't see it? What do you do when you're weak and exhausted and weary and can't find your way out? You reach out to the elders of your church. You call them up and you say, would you please come? I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm, out, I'm at the end of my rope, and I need help. And I need you to come, and I need you to pray for me. When you get to that point, James says, you have an outlet. You have a resource. God has graciously provided for that moment and that season of your life. And He has provided by means of brothers who love you, and who care for your soul, and who have taken on the responsibility of shepherding you and shepherding your soul and caring for you in the name of Jesus. You have a resource. You're not, a, you're not alone. There is a direction for which you can turn, and a direction that brings something good to your life. You call the elders. When you're weak, you call those who are spiritually strong. When you don't know the words to pray for yourself, call those who are in touch with the Lord, who have a grasp on His Word, who can come alongside you you and give words to your prayers that you don't know how to utter. Who can come alongside you and encourage you and lift you up and do for you what you can't do for yourself. You take the initiative and you reach out to the elders that they might come alongside you and they might lift you up. That's what you do when you're at the end of your rope. That's what you do when your suffering is deep. And that's about where we left off last week. What is it the elders are supposed to do when they come? Well, James tells us a couple things the elders are supposed to do. He says they're to pray over the sick person. Which is interesting that James could have said a lot of things that the elders should do when they come and, uh, and gather. But he says primarily the work that they're to do is they're to pray over the sick person. They're not there to work some miraculous uh, activity. They don't come into the room casting out the demon of sickness and disease. They don't come in and engage some sort of elder superpowers. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, there's a uh, the uh, superheroes, the Wonder Twins. Do you remember them? You know, they hit their fists together. You know, Wonder Twins powers activate. It's not like the elders have superpowers and they come to the sick person and activate elder power. And now all of a sudden, something miraculous is going to happen. That's not the issue. The elders are to do something that seems rather ordinary. They're to pray. You say it seems ordinary, but it seems, at least in God's economy, that it's not ordinary, that it's extraordinary. That there's actually power in praying. That praying actually has an effect and it makes a difference. And that's what the elders are called to do. They're to pray. They're to prayer. And their prayer is to be a prayer of faith. And that prayer of faith is to be a prayer that believes in a God who has the power to heal. A faith that believes <clears throat> that God is good and that His perfect will will be accomplished in the life of the one to whom they are, or over whom they are praying. A faith in, the, in God's love for His children and His care for those who are weak. A belief and a faith that God answers prayer and that prayer matters. Trusting in the sovereign will of God to do His sovereign work in the life of the one who is struggling and suffering. These are all things that it's almost impossible to do when you were at rock bottom. You don't know how to pray for yourself. It's hard to believe in God's goodness. It's hard to believe in God's mercy. It's hard to see that God is loving. It's hard to pray and believe that God heals when you've struggled and suffered for a long time. It's hard to believe that prayer is effective when you've prayed and you don't seem to be getting what you're asking for. So the elders are called to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. James has already told us about the importance of faith in praying. In James 1, you remember verse 5 and 7? He says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Well, you ask God. That's praying. Ask God. He gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask how? In faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. 
So when James comes back around to this issue of prayer, he expects it to be a prayer of faith. A prayer that's not mixed in with doubt. It's a prayer that knows that God has the capacity to heal. Uh, A prayer that knows that God uh, can heal and will do what is best and most loving and most merciful and most gracious for the one to whom they are praying or for whom they are praying. It's a prayer of faith. And you'll notice it's it's not the faith of the sick one that's in view here. It's the faith of the elders. We may have a parallel here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's a familiar story. You remember Jesus is going about his ministry, and there's a paralyzed man. Do you remember this? And he can't get to Jesus on his own because he's paralyzed. And so how does he get there? Well, he has some friends, some godly friends, some brothers who go to the trouble of putting him on a mat and lifting him up and wading through the crowd and going up on a roof and tearing a hole in the roof and and lowering down this man into the presence of Jesus. Then in Mark chapter 2, verse 3, it tells us, And they came bringing to him the paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw what? He saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Had nothing to do with the, the the faith of the paralytic. It had to do with the faith of the men who went to all the trouble to bring him. I mean, their actions spoke to their faith and the power of Christ to heal. The trouble that they went to to get that man there. Why did they do that? They did that because they believed and fully trusted that if they could just get him in front of Jesus, Jesus could make it right. And Jesus says, because of that, he heals. So similar here in James, it's it's the faith of the elders who bring the sick person before the Lord that's in view, not the the faith of the individual. Again, I just say this in contrast to our charismatic friends and some in that movement who are not friends, who speak just pure heresy. I've run into this a time or two where where folks uh, teach and preach and proclaim that God's will is always that we be healed and healthy. And if someone isn't healed and healthy and they're praying for it, the problem isn't in the fact that God doesn't will that they be healed. The problem is that they just don't have enough faith to believe that God can heal them. And that's really a sick and twisted sort of a theology that just adds insult to injury when somebody is sick. To say, well, you're sick and God's not healing you because not only are you sick, but you don't have enough faith either. So go drum up some faith somehow. It's foolish. This issue isn't even on the the table here with this guy in Mark 2, nor with what James is speaking to in James chapter 5. It's the elders who are to come. And it's the elders who are to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His power to do what is best and right in the life of the believer who's suffering. And it is their responsibility to come and to pray and to believe God for an answer. But they don't just pray. He says they pray anointing Him with oil. And this opens up an entirely challenging matter about which there is such wide divergence of view that uh, we could spend the rest of today and next week and the following laying out all of the sorts of uh, ways that people come to this issue of the anointing with oil and what it means. It brings up questions like, what is the significance of the oil? How is the oil to be applied? What is the relationship of the oil to the praying that goes on in the room? What exactly does it even mean to anoint somebody with oil? James doesn't highlight any of the specifics of any of that, and we have no parallel in the rest of the New Testament that gives us any indication of answers to most of those questions either. So I could summarize it by just saying, we don't know the answer to all that. God hasn't given it to us. But I'll say more. There are only two places in the New Testament where we see anointing with oil mentioned. Apart from this, it's Mark 6, verse 13. When Jesus is sending out the disciples, he sends them out and commissions them to ministry. And it simply tells us they cast out demons, anointed with oil, many who were sick, and they healed them. Doesn't give us any help, does it, with this text. It just tells us that the apostles, during their ministry, they anointed people with oil, and people were healed. In Luke chapter 10, verse 33 and verse 34, we have the, the, sort of the narrative of the Good Samaritan. You remember this story? The Good Samaritan who's on the road, he's robbed, he's beaten, and pious religious Jews pass him up. But um, this, this Jew is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is beaten. And this Samaritan who comes by, who normally hates Jews, is the one who has compassion on the man who's beaten and robbed and helps him. 
And in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, it says, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That's the sick man who's been beaten up and robbed. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So in this case, the pouring or anointing with oil is in relation to a man who's been beaten up and is physically wounded. And uh, oil and wine is poured on his wounds as a part of the healing process in his life. We have, apart from those two texts, nothing that indicates to us anything else about anointing with oil, what it means, how it's to be done, or any of the thousand other questions that might be raised in our minds when we hit this text. So what do we make of the anointing with oil? Um, I'm going to give you a few options that are sort of common options, and I'm going to tell you what I think um, best take that I have on this, what, what James has in mind here. Um, common themes, if you study this issue, you'll find there are those who argue that the, the anointing with oil has a medicinal purpose. It's a medicinal sort of a thing. They would say that James and many in the first century viewed oil uh, as, as having healing properties. Uh, some would say that it would heal anything from a toothache uh, you know, to paralysis to anything in between. And oil was often rubbed on wounds and rubbed on people uh, because uh, the common... The thought of the day was that it was a part of, it had a medicinal sort of a healing quality about it. And, um, and so folks would say that the Good Samaritan story might be an indication of this kind of thing. A guy's wounded, he's been beaten up, they're rubbing oil and putting wine on the wound, uh, presumably as some sort of a healing agent. And so if we take it to mean that, if the anointing with oil is, is that that's what James has in view, then the application would be then this, that oil is not a particularly necessary part of this process in our day because God has other better means that he's shown us for healing the body. We have medicines and we have pills and we have drinks that we can drink that make sicknesses go away a lot better than rubbing oil on it. So the application would be the elders come and pray and then send them off to the doctor to get medicine. Perhaps that's what James means. Some think so. Others would argue that what James is talking about is that the anointing with oil has a sacramental uh, meaning. This is sort of what our Roman Catholic friends would understand this text to mean. They would say that by saying it has a sacramental uh, sort of a value, what they're saying is that when, when the oil is applied, that it actually becomes sort of a vehicle for divine power. It is a means of God's grace. That it's a critical point by which God pours a particular grace through that particular means. It's wrapped up in the Roman Catholic sacrament of, of extreme unction. You may know that as last rites. When someone is dying, they will come. They'll pray over the one who's dying. They'll anoint them with oil. And the indication is and the belief is there that the oil has this sacramental sort of a, of a value of removing any remnant of sin and strengthening the soul of the one who's dying to prepare them to die. Again... Um, it doesn't seem to me that there's any, any indication that that's what James has in mind here. Uh, the issue isn't somebody who's about to die. It doesn't have anything to do with these other sort of uh, sacramental pieces. And the words that James uses don't point to a sacramental usage. A third option is he has a pastoral uh, meaning. That the, the oil serves a pastoral purpose. And, 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 and simply here, what we mean is that when we anoint someone with oil, or when the elders come and anoint someone with oil, it's simply sort of an outward physical expression of, of a pastoral concern. And the, the point is to stimulate the faith of the one who's sick. It, it, it doesn't have any particular value in itself. It's just a means by which to encourage and stimulate the faith of the person who's suffering and weary and weak. And they would point to maybe some of the things that Jesus did in his healing that were not particularly necessary but seemed to serve some sort of a, of, a, of a comfort or encouragement purpose. Like you remember, Jesus heals a particular blind man. He, uh, he takes some, some, some dirt and he spits in the dirt and he makes clay and puts it on the guy's eyes, right? Now, does Jesus need to put clay in a guy's eyes to heal him? No, he doesn't. He can just say, be healed and you're healed. But he chooses in that particular case to do something very physical and something very tangible because it's a part of stimulating his faith and encouraging him, but not critical to the act of healing. And some would say that that, that is what's in view here with the anointing with oil. That the elders come, it's not that the oil has any, any sort of uh, magical power to heal, but it's a way of doing something physical to stimulate the faith of the one who's suffering and to encourage them. And then finally... Uh, 
there are those who would argue that the, the, what, what's in view here is sort of a, a symbolic thing. That the anointing of oil has the, it carries the symbolism of, of a particular setting apart of someone for particular care from the Lord. In the Old Testament, we see anointing regularly used to symbolize the setting apart of things or people for God's particular use. In the New Testament, we see something similar. Anointing used as a metaphor for consecration to God's service, being set apart for particular use or care by the Lord. And so understanding James to mean this, we would be saying then that the elders come around, they anoint with prayer, uh, anoint with oil as they pray, and that anointing has the, carries the symbolic Meaning of setting that particular person apart for particular and special care from the Lord in the particular matter with which they are suffering. It seems to me that probably some combination of those last two is what's in view. That, that James has in mind here, this encouraging stimulation of faith and also the setting apart of particular uh, a person for particular care from the Lord. The word he uses here for anointing, and I apologize up front. Well, it's not really up front, is it? It's kind of late. Um, that we have to talk about some particular words. I don't like to do a bunch of Greek word studies on Sunday mornings. I don't, you know, some of you just make your eyes roll back in your head. But here it matters. James uses a particular word for anoint. There are two words he could have chosen. One of them, the one that he uses here, had, carries sort of the indication of a physical rubbing of oil into something, almost like the massaging of oil into uh, uh, a person, or it could be a horse, or something else. The word is used in many ways, and, and only other. There's only two times in the text of scripture where it has any sort of a ceremonial usage. It carries with it sort of a physical meaning. The other word that he could have chosen uh, is used primarily for ceremonial sort of anointing. And James does not use that intentionally here. So it seems to me that what James is indicating by his choice of words and the way he's laying this out to us is that the elders are to come and they're to do this physical act which sort of symbolizes the setting apart of this person for God's special care and for his special attention in that particular moment for that particular need. That it serves that purpose. So the oil is an encouragement. It encourages them because it's, it communicates that the elders are particularly concerned about them and praying for them in a particular way for this particular matter. And because of that, they should be encouraged. It also is symbolic of setting them apart for particular care from the Lord. So that's the best I think we can do with what James tells us and with the language that we have here. What we can say for sure is that the oil has no magic in it. It's not, it's not magic oil. The oil is secondary. It's the prayer that's primary that is the trigger for the healing, not the oil. The key to the text, I think, is in this next phrase. It says they're to pray and they're to anoint with him with oil and they're to do all of this in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. This phrase we find all throughout the text of the New Testament and it's synonymous with the understanding of according to the will of God. In the name of the Lord, according to His will, are, are synonymous phrases. And due to the time, I don't want to spend the time tracking all of that through. But I do want to give you James, or excuse me, John 14, verse 13 and 14, which I think is a parallel to this text, where Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what does Jesus mean when He says that? Does he, is He saying that, you know, Anything you pray for, if you believe it enough, I'm going to do it. I'm now obligated to grant that prayer. Is that what James is saying? That there's some sort of, that Jesus is saying there's some sort of unlimited license that you have, that anything you pray, if you pray it with enough faith that you can muster, that God is now obligated to give it to you? God, I really am believing for a new Ferrari next week, and I believe you can give me a Ferrari, and I want that Ferrari, and so I expect you to deliver it to my doorstep next week? Is that what Jesus is arguing here in John chapter 14? Clearly it's not. Just as in James chapter 5, he's not laying down also a blanket guarantee of physical healing every time someone is prayed for with faith. Where does he clear this up? Well, he clears it up in John chapter, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything, how? According to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. Now it makes more sense. Uh, John here clarifies for us that this praying 
whatever we ask in his name is always understood to be qualified for are qualified by this, asking according to his will. Charles Hodge says this. He says, It cannot be supposed that God has subjected himself in the government of the world or in the dispensation of his gifts to the short-sighted wisdom of men by promising without condition to do whatever they ask. No rational man could wish this to be the case. And he's right. We often ask for foolish things. And God would never obligate himself to such And it's clear from the context of Scripture that God's will is not always to heal. Right? It's clear. We have the Apostle Paul, who suffered physically in many ways, in ways that for which he did not get relief. In one particular way, he prayed three times that God would remove the suffering from his life. And in every case, what was the answer? No, my grace is sufficient. It was clearly not God's will to heal. Paul in those situations. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about, verse 20, he talks about uh, a time when he he leaves uh, and and, and instead of carrying Trophimus with him, uh, he leaves him back at Corinth. Why does he leave him back at Corinth? Because he's ill. If it was God's will to heal every time people pray, surely Paul would have prayed for Trophimus and he would have been healed and they could have gotten on their way. But clearly it wasn't God's will to heal Trophimus. And again, as mentioned in the introduction, Everybody dies of something. And every believer who dies of something has somebody who loves them who prays that they wouldn't die and believes that God could heal them, and God doesn't. So the Scriptures are clear. God does not always will to heal, even in response to believing prayer. There are times when God's will is for sickness to endure and death to come. So James then says, what next? The prayer, this is where it gets tricky. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now again, we don't have time to trace these words all around, but the word that's translated save here is a word that means primarily restore, deliver, save. It can mean heal. Primarily it carries the sense of rescuing a deliverer or delivering a person from imprisonment or affliction. It can mean one of two things. It can mean delivering them from a physical sickness. It can mean healing. It also can mean restoring them spiritually, restoring them emotionally, restoring them to to vitality that they've lost in various ways of their life. The word translated sick here is a word that means to be weary, to be fatigued, to be sick. Doesn't always talk about, doesn't always mean something physical. It can mean exhausted, burn out. At the end of your rope for a variety of reasons. So again, the language is vague. It can rock in either direction of something spiritual or something physical. And James says the Lord will raise him up. And in some sense, he'll say, what do we make of all this? Well, I think James leaves this intentionally vague for a reason. My take is that James intentionally leaves it vague to give room for the Lord's will in a particular matter. James understands that, we don't, that none of us fully understand the will of God in any particular matter. And that sometimes it's God's will to heal physically, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's God's will to restore the spirit and leave the body suffering, and sometimes it's not. That God has lots of ways He might heal or He might not heal. God has lots of ways that He might meet us in the midst of our suffering and help us and save us and rescue us and deliver us. And that always isn't a physical healing. It may be God's will to bring physical healing immediately. He does that sometimes. It may be God's will to bring physical healing gradually over time. Sometimes He does that. It may be God's will to bring spiritual, emotional restoration right in the middle of the suffering. That He might encourage us in the midst of suffering. That He might restore us that way. And leave the physical for a season. Or maybe forever. It may be God's will to restore a weary and exhausted saint and to encourage them to endure in the present because he lifts their eyes to the future and reminds them that there's a time that's coming where all sickness and all disease is going to be healed and ultimate healing and ultimate restoration is just around the corner. And they can hang on for the moment because God is going to save them in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, once and for all, forever. So they can hold on. God's will is mysterious, and James knows that. And he knows that we can't possibly, not the elders, not any of us, 
know in a given moment exactly what God's perfect will is. And so we pray, believing upon God to heal and to restore and to do whatever it is that he chooses to do according to his will in that moment, believing that God will answer the prayer in some way. Craig Blumberg says this. He says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal physically and requiring him to heal on demand. There's a balance in there somewhere. And we have to find it. The last thing James mentions, and I want to get this quickly, is this. He says, here's the general principle of life. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, praise God. If you're at the end of your rope and you don't know what to do and you can't pray for yourself, reach out to the elders. They'll come and pray for you and God will lift you up. He'll raise you up. He'll restore what's missing according to his will. But then he says in verses 15 and 16, and if he's committed a sin, he'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James recognizes something. He recognizes that sometimes it is true that the suffering that we endure, sometimes even our physical suffering, is the result of sin in our lives. Now again, we could do a whole sermon on this. But the scripture makes clear two things. Sin can be the cause of our suffering, but sin is not always the cause of our suffering. Those are two things that are clear in scripture. Sometimes suffering comes from living in a fallen world, and it comes just with the territory has nothing to do with our sin. John chapter 9, you remember Jesus was walking by um, uh, a man that was born blind, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember what Jesus says to him? It was neither one. It wasn't, his, it wasn't because he sinned. It wasn't because his parents had nothing to do with sin whatsoever. It was that the works of God might be revealed in him. And he goes on to talk about being the light in the darkness, and he opens the man's eyes in a miracle. It had nothing to do with sin. It just had to do with living in a fallen world and the purpose of God in this particular man's life. But there are times when sin does result in suffering. Particular kinds of sin, it's easy for us to understand. If you, if you abuse your body with alcohol and drugs, you can rot your liver out, right? And other parts of your body. You, you indulge yourself and you, you abuse the temple of the Holy Spirit that the Lord has given you. And you can expect suffering to come from that and sickness and disease. It's no surprise. You live a life of sexual promiscuity and you disobey God's, God's expectations for you in the way of sexuality and promiscuity. And you pick up sexually transmitted diseases and HIV and other things. The sin brings suffering in some very real ways. We think of 1 Corinthians where Paul is speaking about the Lord's Supper and he says to those gathered believers, you know what, you, you've, you have prostituted the Lord's Supper and you've, you've defiled the Lord's Supper. And because you've done this, some of you are sick and some of you are asleep. That is to say, some are sick because of their sin and defiling the Lord's table and some of them are dead because of it. So there are times when sickness and sin are related And James recognizes that. And that's why he says when the elders come around, that not only do they pray for healing, but they pray for whatever sin might be in the life of this person that could potentially be the cause of what's going on in their particular situation. And the prayer of the elders on their behalf brings forgiveness and therefore relief. Again, I can't spend time on this, but just simply to say this. The issue here isn't searching around for some secret hidden sin that we've forgotten about that may be causing our sickness. The the concept here is that the sick person knows clearly that there's sin in their life and they understand the connection to their suffering. It's not some mysterious thing. And then he says the most important thing for us to wrap up our time with this morning. He says this, as a result of this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Because sometimes sin is connected to suffering, it should be the normal practice of the body of Christ to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. James says, you know what, there's a way, there's a way to, to, to have a balm in the body of Christ, a preventative, 
of getting people to the place where they're so desperate that they have to call the elders, and it's, it's gotten to that point. The way that you deal with that is deal with sin at a lower level, and that's at an everyday level with one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be forgiven and healed at a low level before that sickness goes to a level where it's desperation. Praying for one another is part of body life. It's one of the ways we love each other. It's one of the ways we care for one another. It's not just the purview of the elders to pray for the body of Christ. It's all of our responsibility to pray for one another. And God uses our confession of sin to one another and our prayers for one another as a part of His healing in our lives. And as a preventative of us experiencing the kind of suffering that comes from unrestrained sin and unconfessed sin. Of course, it presupposes spiritual integrity in the body of Christ, doesn't it? It presupposes that we have spiritual integrity with one another. It presupposes that we're not gossips and slanderers, that we're not judgmental, critical people who like to hear somebody else's sin and then go tell everybody else about it, right? That's why James has such a big issue about the tongue. It's why he says it's such a big deal that we control our tongues. Because when you have a church where people can't control their mouths, where they gossip and they slander and they lie and they revel in other people's sin and they like to spread juicy gossip, it absolutely undercuts the ability of the church to confess sin to one another and pray for one another and be healed. It robs the church of its power. We think our tongues are a small thing. And James says it's a huge thing because when you don't control your tongues, nobody's going to confess their sin to you because they don't trust you and they're not going to be able to go to one another, confess our sin and pray for each other and find healing. Something as simple as loose lips destroys the power of prayer in a church. And I can't trust you to keep confidential what I share with you. I'll never confess my sin to you and ask you to pray for me. Nor will you of me. Finally, it presupposes church membership. This whole thing presupposes church membership. It presupposes that the believer who's suffering belongs to a local body of believers. That they're a part of the local church. That they have particular elders that are responsible for shepherding their particular soul. Because it says, when you get to that point, who do you call? You call the elders of your church. If you're not connected to a church and you've not set yourself under the leadership and the care of particular shepherds, then you have nobody to call. You are in a desperate particular particular situation. You are in a desperate place when you live your life disconnected from the local body of Christ and you get to your point of desperation. Who are you going to call? It's not going to be the Ghostbusters. They're not going to help you. You have no elders because you've not submitted to life in a local body of church. You haven't connected with the body and submitted yourself to the care of elders. So you have no one to call. You're all alone. How are you going to confess your sin and pray for one another within the local body if you've excluded yourself from the local body and live like a lone ranger believer? You can't. If there's ever been an argument for membership in a local church somewhere, I believe it's James chapter 5. Because the believer who does not join a church and connect hearts with a local body of believers somewhere and submit themselves to the care of the elders has cut themselves off for the best resources that God has provided in them, in their lives, for when they're suffering and when they're exasperated and at the end of their rope. If you're not connected to a local church, listen, you need to join a church. It's for your own spiritual good and your own spiritual benefit to be a part of a local body. And to not be bouncing around to different places, sort of ever in that mode of kicking the tires. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect pastor. There are no perfect people. But find one that you can agree with and join the body of Christ. And submit yourself to the love and care of shepherds who can care for your soul and can care for you in your most desperate moments. To live the life of some sort of an arrogant, I don't need church, I don't need people, I can do this on my own, is foolish. Remember a show when I was a kid, you remember the A-Team? There's a guy named Mr. T on the A-Team. Remember that guy? He used to always say, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who messes with Mr. T, or I pity the fool that does whatever. I don't know why that came to my mind. But I tell you what, I pity the fool who thinks they can live their Christian life by themselves, apart from the local church. Because that's what you are if you try to live yourself that way. You are not made and meant to live apart from the body of Christ. 
You're made to live in community where other people can love you, care for you, be a part of God's healing in your life as you confess your sin and they pray for you and in a place where you have godly shepherds and elders who you can call at any time when you're desperate who will come and pray for you and be the the vessel through which God brings healing into your life in whatever way He chooses to do that. Let's pray together. God, we we are eminently grateful that You love us and care for us. We confess these things are hard. We don't understand Your will. We cannot possibly fathom why sometimes it's Your will that we suffer in painful ways and why we suffer for extended times and why we pray for healing and You don't grant it. These things are hard. We don't understand. We don't understand why sometimes You heal some and sometimes You don't. But we confess that we believe in Your power to heal and we believe in Your love for Your people and Your your mercy toward us. And we fully believe that there is coming a day when you will make all things right. And healing in every sense will be granted forever. As we leave this place and spend forever with you, there will be no sickness or disease. There will be no depression and discouragement. There will be relief in every sense forever. And yet, Lord, you've told us that when we're suffering... We're to bring it to you. We're to pray. And we're to pray for one another. And the shepherds and the elders are to pray particularly for those who are suffering severely. And pray that you would heal because you do that still. And you do it particularly, as you said, in response to prayer. And so, God, I pray that in these moments as we wrestle with this text, that you would give us at least the clarity to believe that it's worth it to pray that you do hear our prayers and that you do respond and that you are still in the business of healing in a lot of different ways. Help us to not make demands upon you that are unreasonable and be discouraged when you don't meet them. But to confidently pray and lift our cares and concerns before you and for one another that you might heal, that you might raise up according to your will. Lord, for those who don't know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, they've never confessed their sin. They've never submitted their lives to your rule and reign. They've never abandoned their own efforts at being good and recognize their inability to ever possibly be good enough. And just run to you, receiving your death on the cross as a covering for their sin. I pray that they would do that in these very moments, that you would bring to them the salvation of, your, of their soul, the ultimate healing. And beyond that, Lord, as a church, teaches to be a people who prays for one another and who believes in you. Lord, bless us as we sing for Christ's sake. Amen.